Please pray with me. Father above, in this moment when we are offered a glimpse into what you have purposed from the very beginning of time, I pray that our hearts would be enlarged, that our faith would grow, that we would become those who are steadfast and overflowing in the work of the kingdom. Amen. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. Paul's telling us a mystery. He tells us this in verse 51. I don't know about y'all, but I actually love mystery stories. My current favorite is a lady named Petey James, and if you've not read Petey James, she is worth reading. She is so good, a British mystery writer. Kind of in the vein of Dorothy Sayers, but a bit more sophisticated. Courtney and I at various moments have loved shows like Foyle's War, or even Grantchester before it got really strange and weird and went down the hole. I love mystery stories. To us, a mystery is a problem to be solved. It's usually a crime that needs to be solved. And that's what we hear when we hear the word mystery. We need to realize, though, that that's not the way the word was used in Paul's day. And that's not what it meant. In the time of the New Testament, the word mystery, its basic definition is simply a secret. Now you can see how that definition overlaps with ours. But Paul doesn't use it to mean a secret that needs to be solved. Instead, the word, and he's very consistent in his usage of it, means a secret that is in the heart of God. A part of God's plan for humanity a secret that was hidden from the very beginning of time in his heart, from eternity past, that was hinted at in the Old Covenant, but a secret that's now been revealed in Jesus Christ. He never uses it to describe a secret that is yet to be revealed. It's a secret that has been revealed. It was some glorious plan, some purpose that God had, some mysterious secret plan that has now become clear in Jesus. Something we couldn't have expected, but suddenly we go, oh, of course it had to be that way. The, the, the evidence was laid all along the way, and of course this is the way it had to be. That's what he means by the word secret. So in Ephesians 3, he says, the fact that the Gentiles are fellow heirs with the Jews of the promise is a mystery. You couldn't have seen it coming. But once it's revealed in Jesus, you say, of course, it had to be that way. He describes later in that same book, in Ephesians 5, the union of Christ and the church, that union being more real than the union between husband and wife. And he describes that union as a mystery, a secret that was in the heart of God, that once it's been revealed, you say, of course, it had to be that way. But you couldn't have predicted it beforehand. In Colossians 2, he says in a very straightforward manner, Christ is the mystery. You could not have predicted it. But once you see it, 
everything makes sense. God's mystery revealed to us. In other words, when Paul uses the word mystery, it's not something to be solved, but instead something glorious that's been revealed. Something that's been revealed in the work of Jesus. In order to understand the particular mystery he's describing, we need to back up to these first couple of verses where he says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor is the perishable inherit the imperishable. The foundational truth that he's working with is that we, as we stand, cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Flesh and blood can't do so. The perishable can't inherit the imperishable. If you were to say, but why not? There's a number of answers that we can give. One of the basic ones that Paul's sort of working with is simply the fact that we are too weak. The kingdom of God is weighty. It is full of glory. It's so heavy and strong that it would actually crush us or destroy us to come into it. This, by the way, is why in the Bible, every time somebody confronts an angel, what do they do? They fall down like a dead person or they try to worship them. The kingdom of God is beyond us. It is more than us. It is deeper than us. It is heavier than us. It is so substantial it would crush us. We cannot because of our weakness. For us to enter the kingdom of God would be like to send a child who can barely skate into a professional hockey game. They're going to get crushed. You shouldn't go there. C.S. Lewis depicts this beautifully in The Great Divorce where he has these spirits who come from hell to the outskirts of heaven and they are so flimsy and insubstantial that even the grass in heaven hurts their feet. They're crushed by the weight and the glory of what's there. As an aside, this, by the way, I think is why Jesus could walk through walls, through doors. Y'all might say that's the strangest thing ever. We tend to think of him entering that upper room through the door like a ghost. You know, he's less substantial than the door, so he can come through it the way that wind goes through a screen because it's less substantial. But of course, one thing can go through another, not only because it's less substantial, but it can also go through another because it's more substantial. A giant doesn't go through a wall because it's less substantial than the wall. The giant goes through it because he is more substantial. You or I walk through a river not because we are less substantial than the water, but because we're actually heavier and stronger and thicker. If that's the weirdest thing you ever heard, let me just tell you the point. The kingdom of God is substantial and thick, and we are weak. Flesh and blood cannot inherit it. We're too weak for it. Another reason why we can't inherit it is very simply our impurity. The kingdom of heaven is a world of blinding, beautiful, piercing holiness searing into. Let me ask you very bluntly. Do you want to go into a realm where there are no secret thoughts? Where all things are revealed? Where the light shines not just on the physical surfaces, but on every surface of the heart? You understand my point. Our impurity would prohibit us from going into the kingdom of God. We would want to flee to come into that world. The point that Paul is making is that we simply cannot survive there. 
flesh and blood, his summation of humanity in its natural and fallen state, flesh and blood can't inherit it. The perishable can't inherit the imperishable. It doesn't fit. It doesn't work. You would never do it. You would never take rotting meat or rotting fruit and thrust it in a chest full of jewels. It doesn't make sense. We can't go there, is his point. The dishonorable should not be in the presence of glory. You don't bring paupers and rags before monarchs. You get his point. We are too weak to be in the realm of the strong. This is his premise. Flesh and blood can't inherit the kingdom of God. But there's a deeper level to this premise, one that we need to explore before we move on, and that is the fact that he doesn't just say flesh and blood can't enter the kingdom of God. He actually says flesh and blood can't inherit the kingdom of God. Inherit's a loaded word. The word inherit refers to the land, the way the Jews were called to take possession of it, take possession of it and actually rule over it. He's actually saying flesh and blood cannot take possession of and rule over the kingdom. It's not just that we can't enter it. It's that we can't rule over it. We can't go there and act the way that we were supposed to as God's viceroys, his sub-rulers, his sub-regents. You may say, well, I never expected to. I never expected to rule there. But we were supposed to. Paul actually says in this very letter in 1 Corinthians 6, just a few chapters earlier, he says that, do you not know that one day we will judge the world? He says even farther, do you not know that the believers will one day judge the angels? Can you imagine that? Us? sitting in judgment over the angels. This is chapter 6. We were called to rule there. And so when he says flesh and blood cannot inherit, he's not saying not just enter. He's saying they cannot inherit. In other words, take possession of and rule over. We are not prepared to exercise authority in that realm. We are too weak to hold the scepter, is the way that one author phrased it. We have no moral authority to rule there. If y'all are like me, you would probably say, don't put me in charge of this world, let alone the world to come. Can you imagine that? But of course, Paul's statement is that flesh and blood cannot do this. So that's the setting. This is the frame of reference. And at this point, we would probably all say with Paul, I know. I'm too weak, too flimsy to enter that world. Certainly too weak, too flimsy to rule over that world. I'm too impure to go into that place of blinding purity and holiness. And I certainly have no moral authority to rule over that world. That's the context. But then Paul says, but I tell you a mystery. A mystery. Something revealed by the work of Jesus that was hidden in the heart of God. His plan from the very beginning. His plan because he knew that we would be too weak to follow through on what he called us to. His plan because he knew that we would be too impure to follow through on what he called us to. The mystery is we shall be changed. The mystery is not, oh, your role is taken away. The mystery is we shall be changed. Not identity erased, not immaterial beings becoming a ghost, some sort of pure spirit. Instead, he says, we will be transformed. And what was too weak will be too weak no longer. 
What was mortal will become immortal. What was perishable will become powerful, glorious, pure, unconquerable. As Luther said, we will be endowed with a better and more beautiful form than we ever had on this earth. We will become people who are, as Luther said, strong and vigorous, healthy and happy, more beautiful than the sun and the moon. Can you imagine that transformation? We will become, and again, this is Luther, people who possess all the spiritual gifts, powerful creatures who actually are beautiful, possessing spiritual power and gifts. Remember the mystery. Mystery is this thing that was hidden in the heart of God, his secret plan for creation. Something that he hinted at, but it was only made clear in Jesus. And this is the mystery that Paul is describing. That those who say yes to him, those who say yes to Jesus, those who submit to him, those who actually receive his life by faith, those who repent of the ways they've refused to honor God, those who were baptized in the name of Jesus, all of those will be transformed. They will be transformed so that they become strong, glorious, powerful, able to govern all of creation with God, able to judge even the angels, able to rule over the world. This is the mystery, the thing that's now been revealed. This is God's plan. This is what he's doing. And Paul's claim in this passage that it's in the final resurrection that that transformation takes place. The end of the story is not, y'all failed in your duty and your role of ruling over the new creation is taken away. Instead, the end of the story is for those who are united to Jesus, you will be transformed so that you can rule over creation. At that moment of transformation, Paul says, the final victory will be realized. The final victory where death itself is swallowed up in the victory of God. The final victory where sin is completely destroyed and done away with. At that moment of transformation, death will be swallowed up. It will never be feared again. At that moment, it could not harm. It could not harm you or anyone you love. At that moment, sin itself will be destroyed. At that moment of transformation, and this is a place where if you're like me, you want to say hallelujah. At that moment, sin itself will be no more. You will no longer sin. No one will sin against you in that moment. This is the transformation being described. This is what happens when the full victory is realized. The victory that will be realized where death is swallowed up and sin is thoroughly destroyed has actually already been accomplished. It's already been accomplished now. It's just not yet fully been realized in our lives and in creation. It's fully been accomplished, which actually means that sin and death cannot actually harm you right now. It's true that we still experience them. We still experience a great deal of grief from them. We all know what it means to actually experience our own sin, to be hurt by our own sin. We know what it means to experience the sin of others, to be hurt by their sin. But our sins, if we are united to Christ, cannot harm us in the ultimate sense because our lives are actually secure in God. They can't separate us from God. They can't take away the life to come. They can't nullify the transformation that God is actually going to work in your life. The guilt, the shame, the fear that flow from sin and death even though we still experience those things, they do not stick to us. 
And perhaps most beautifully, that's not how God sees you. The guilt, the shame, the fear that spring from sin and death, because the victory has already been won, those are not the ways that God sees you. He does not look at you if you are united to Christ and see guilt. He does not look at you and see shame. And he certainly sees no fear because he knows the transformation to come. The victory has already been won. And it is actually offered to all who would bow the knee to God. That's the offer on the table. But the victory that has already been won and is offered now will actually be fully realized in the transformation. In other words, when we are transformed, that victory will be experienced in every sphere of our life. Every sphere of our life. Can you imagine if every place your life touched, there was no hint of sickness and death? Can you imagine if every place your life touched, there was no hint of sin? This is the transformation he's referring to. When all the victory comes crashing in and we're able to sing with Paul, death has been swallowed up in victory. Death has been swallowed up in victory. And we can taunt with him and say, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The victory has already been won. But at that moment of transformation, it will be fully realized. Realized in every sphere of our life. I want to close by using Paul's imagery to describe how this victory has been won. His imagery is beautiful. He pulls it from a couple of places in the Old Testament, from Isaiah and Hosea, and weaves it together. But he describes death like a scorpion. It's got a sting in its tail. It's got a nasty sting, and that sting is sin itself. It's actually sin that makes death lethal and harmful. It's sin that makes death painful. If we could speculate, what would death have been if it had existed, if sin had not existed? It's a whole lot of ifs. But we could speculate based on his logic that if death had existed without sin, it would be completely painless. No sting. It would have simply been translation into the realm of God. It would have been no pain, no sorrow in it. But as it stands, death has a vicious sting. Sin itself. But the beauty of the way that the victory was accomplished, the beauty of the story is that that scorpion, that scorpion death itself thrust its sting into the very heart of God. That scorpion thrust the sting that is sin into the very heart of God, into Jesus Christ himself. Jesus who willingly offered himself, who stood between that scorpion and us. This is the image that he's working with. All the poison of that sting leapt into the very heart of Jesus. And all the poison flowed into him and was absorbed by him. He was greater than all the poison. He was greater than the depth of all of the sin that we have done. As one of my favorite quotes says, that all the wickedness that the world may do or think is no more to the mercy of God than a live coal dropped in the sea. Picture that image. Take a live coal and throw it into the sea, and it's extinguished immediately. It doesn't do anything to the sea. And death, that vicious enemy, 
thrust its sting, sin itself, into the very heart of Jesus. And there death found that the heart of Jesus was larger than its sting. All of the sin of the world was absorbed there. Jesus was greater than the depths of the poison of sin. And he absorbed it all. And so now, even though the scorpion death keeps lashing out, piercing us, it has no weapon left. Its poison is gone. Its poison has been brought into the heart of Jesus and cannot harm you. Even though we still sin, and goodness knows we do, I'm the first. Even though we still sin, that sin is actually powerless to separate us from God because its poison has already been absorbed into the heart of Jesus. Jesus has absorbed the destructive power of sin for all those who simply say yes to him, all those who simply kneel before him. That victory has been won already, but it one day will be finally realized in our lives. It will be realized in all of creation with this transformation occurs. Paul says in Romans 8 that creation is groaning, longing for this moment, longing for the moment when that victory is exercised in every single drop of creation, longing for that. That's the promise. This is the mystery. This is the secret that was buried in the heart of God, the secret that he was holding, waiting for the right moment, revealed in the resurrection of Jesus. And we look back at it with Paul and we say, what a glorious plan. You will be transformed. And in that transformation, you will be called into the kingdom of God and called into the kingdom of God, not as a pauper to sit in the corner, but called there to inherit to rule with Christ, to sit at the table of the king, to exercise authority. So oftentimes our pictures of heaven in our minds are the most boring place in the world. It's like sitting on a cloud with a harp. I've got wings, but I don't even get to use them. You just sit there. We inherit the kingdom, given authority and power to rule over it, to judge the world, and to bring about beauty and glory. I don't know what this work will look like, but everything in us ought to yearn for this moment when everything that flows from the work of our hands, when all of our words cause beauty, cause glory to come about. When we are given authority that we actually use rightly. This is a beautiful picture. It's an unbelievable, glorious plan. This was the mystery that was hidden in the heart of God. This is what he's planning to do. By the way, as an aside, it's an ancient Jewish theology that it was actually at this plan that the devil rebelled. That when Satan, Lucifer, saw what God was intending to do with humanity, saw how he was intending to honor them and elevate them, in his jealousy he said, I will not follow anymore. We have no idea if that's true. But God's plan for humanity is so beautiful. And so grand. So Paul's conclusion. Be steadfast. If this is what God's actually doing in your life, stand strong. If this is what God's doing, job losses, sicknesses, frustrations in relationships, even our own internal struggles and doubts, if this is what God's doing, those things can't threaten us. They can't stop what God is doing. And so Paul says, be steadfast. 
Stand strong. Remember what God is doing in you. Remember what he's doing with his church. Don't panic in the chaos of the world because look what he's going to do. And then he tells them, overflow in the work of the Lord. If this is what God is doing, go out and overflow in the work of the kingdom. Go out and act like this is already true, in other words. Go out into the world and be merciful to those who are lost. Go out into the world and be kind to those who are struggling. Go forgive each other's sins. Go share the gospel. You could almost hear him behind it saying, if this is true, nothing you do is in vain if it's done in the name of Jesus. Go out and scatter the gospel and show forgiveness. Bring kindness to those who are suffering. Every little action matters because God has said, I am going to turn you into a ruler in my kingdom. Go out and scatter the seed of the kingdom. Go out in mercy. Everything we do that fits with the kingdom, that's in the name of Jesus, counts. There are no insignificant actions anymore. He says, if this is all true, you will be transformed, you will rule in the kingdom. The sin sin itself has lost its power. If this is all true, then be steadfast. Overflow with the work of the kingdom because God is at work. Transformation is coming. Amen.